Welcome to the Voices in Union podcast with Reggie Jackson and Maria Hamilton. Good morning, Reggie. How are you? I'm doing great, Maria. How are you doing today? Oh, I am so blessed today. Um, a lot's been going on, and I think um, my heart is actually telling me to probably open up with the different people who have stepped up to see a lot of the hurt that's going on in Milwaukee and I see steer their focus and their money and their attention on getting us better. Okay. So who do you want to start with? Um, I actually want to start with Oprah Winfrey. Okay. okay. So tell us a little bit more about what Oprah did. I read something about it yesterday, but I didn't see the details. Yes, she's actually donating $100,000 to the care for people in Milwaukee, the disenfranchised people, and mental health. Okay. And um, I'm looking forward to working with the Milwaukee Task Force, I mean, the, the Milwaukee Mental Health Task Force. And um, a lot of people that who are involved in advocating for mental health in Milwaukee to see how we can have to utilize that money to get a lot of families who are dealing with domestic violence because they're stuck at home. <laughs> right. And also... Um, a lot of trauma that our kids are going through being stuck at home. Um, yeah, I think it's a good time that we actually uh, focus on talking with our leaders about helping kids. We have a lot of teenagers right now uh, being deprived of school and education and not being able to be around their peers. Uh, so I, I think that that money and whatever other money we can get can actually go towards um, counseling these kids and see what they're actually feeling. You know, uh, I think the the best way for them to heal and proceed into another school year is to be able to release and move out of that uh, by getting the help that we can actually give them. Yeah, I think that's really uh, critically important as we move forward. You know, I just had a, a conversation with one of my former colleagues uh, that I taught with for a number of years, uh, just kind of getting a feel for how things are going uh, in the district with, you know, him and his students. And, you know, he said it's been really difficult communicating with the students, uh, with the students' families. Uh, it's been really kind of a rocky road. Uh, and it hasn't, you know, it hasn't been something that he thinks has been really super helpful for the kids to go through this kind of distance learning that they're doing because it's just – 
it was just too much to do, too much to organize in too short a period of time. And it hasn't really worked out all that well. So he's, you know, he's kind of concerned uh, about his students. You know, he's a special ed teacher and just really concerned about even the desire for some of his students to want to be involved uh, in this because he works with students that have emotional uh, issues. And, you know, these are the students that are the hardest to reach under normal circumstances. So it's really been difficult now going through all of this. So I'm hoping that as they, you know, get through the summer and the beginning of next school year, that they have a, a better system in place. Okay. Okay. Since we're actually talking about kids and education and about actually helping, um, what do you think we can do as a first step? Because you were an educator. Um, you have been in situations where you actually had to deal with students one-on-one. So how do we move forward in our conversation to actually help people um, get coping mechanisms or what direction do you think will be adequate for kids right now? Well, you know, I, I think a, a big step for, for young people is to be able to communicate with their peers. Right. You know, those are the people that they're most comfortable with. They're, they're, they're so accustomed to having time with their friends and, you know, their neighbors, all of those things, having those conversations, seeing each other, going places together, all of those different things. But obviously it's harder for them to do that now. You know, I think that, you know, as, as a community, we need to find ways to, to bring them back together uh, in a safe way so that, you know, we don't have to worry about this virus being spread. But giving them spaces that they can occupy and have some time with their peers and, and being very creative about it. You know, it's, it's been unfortunate that, you know, some young people in the community um, have have not had an opportunity to, to see their, their peers and, you know, as the, the, the stay-at-home order has been lifted, uh, we're, we're beginning to see young people coming together in the parks and things at nature. And it's unfortunate. Yesterday there was a shooting uh, at Denine Park, and I believe a 17-year-old kid was shot yeah. on the basketball court at Denine Park. So, you know, it, it's I'm hoping that we, we get, you know, all of our, our forces that we have in place in the city – that have been working to kind of get young people in particular to kind of get along with each other. You know, Reggie Moore's uh, group at the Office of Violence Prevention and, and a lot of other community-based, you know, leaders that have really done a phenomenal job over the last couple of years of bringing young people together and, and kind of helping them to cope with things so they don't get to the point of having these type of violent incidents. I'm hoping that this COVID-19 doesn't you know, um, prevent them from doing that important work. And I think you and I can do a, a, a job uh, on behalf of them just by advocating for continued right. financial support for their organizations, uh, not just continuing financial support, but, you know, even more money into that because it's needed much more now, as you were saying earlier, you know, the trauma that these young people are dealing with is going to really be exposed this summer. And, and we need to be prepared for that ahead of time instead of waiting and reacting to it. We need to be very proactive about it. 
Yeah, because in the work that I've been doing while, talk, while talking with a lot of teenagers over the previous summers since the Sherman Park incident, um, they used their peers as an outlet from other traumas that they may be going through at home. And with this pandemic going on, they don't have that. Um, they have limited access to their friends or maybe other loved ones outside of the house that they used to reach out to. So um, I was actually thinking about maybe... Um, there's a lot of Zoom going on. Um, I know for my 1-800 numbers, I've had a couple of students ask me about, well, what is our summer going to look like? Are there going to be any kind of um, organizations that have day camps? Because we were actually planning a camp for them to take these kids to a campground up in Michigan around other activists who were kids who were uh, 11 and 12 years old when Dr. Trey died, but they're in high school now and they're activists and they're on the front lines and they're organizing. So we wanted to give them the opportunity to meet these kids to find out how they can help because they wanted to get involved. And with this pandemic, uh, that had to be canceled. Actually, we're supposed to be doing it this weekend. Um, so I, I think just having the conversation and trying to get on one accord that the need is here and how we can get our audience to focus more on our youth and to uh, just be good listeners because they really don't want the adults to tell them what to do, but they want somebody they can actually talk to that's not going to judge. Yeah, that, that's important. You know, I, I think uh, one of the ways that we can kind of advocate for that is really to, to reach out to those youth-based organizations, you know, like Running Rebels um, Absolutely. and groups like that. And, you know, I know that they do a phenomenal job of giving those young people a voice of their own. Uh, because that's what that's what the students really want. You know, that's what young people want. They don't want adults dictating to them what they should think or how they should live their lives. They want to be able to express to 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 the adults in their lives how they feel about things, and also you know be in a position to feel like they have some power over their lives. You know, one of the things that used to frustrate me like crazy, Marie, when I was a teacher because it was so different from when I was a kid, you know, is when, when you ask students to do stuff, they always want to ask why. And, you know, as a teacher, I'm so accustomed to it because we weren't allowed to ask why when we were kids, right? right? We just had to, okay, I'll do it. And after a while, I got accustomed to it and it didn't bother me anymore because I understood that they didn't just want you telling them to do something without some rational reason. And it had to be a reason that they agreed with, too. 
Otherwise, they didn't, you know, they weren't going to be 100 percent on board with doing stuff. So I think that if we can can reach out to those organizations and have them, you know, have the, the, the voice of the students talk to the other young people uh, in the community, because that's who they listen to more so right. than anybody else. They want to hear their own voices, voices of people their age, because they know those lived experiences will be the same as their lived experiences. And so if we can can get some of those organizations involved and start beginning to, to listen, like you said, to the voices of those young people, that would be phenomenal. Right. Yeah. <sighs> yeah. And, and I also feel as though I know there has been a division with charter schools and public schools, but the kids have the same desire. They don't think about privatizing. They just feel as though they're in that school to get an education. So their education is just as important as the charter school, regardless as to what the cost of them being in that school is. So I, I think bringing them together uh, would be important as well because there's a division between, even though one of them children may stay on the same block with 15 other kids that go to public school, mm -hmm. they will not interact because of the way the education system is set up in Milwaukee. So I, I think that's helpful too because educating children is educating all children. Yeah, you're right about that. And, you know, one of the interesting things, I, I, I was fortunate enough uh, over the last several years to have worked uh, with different schools and, you know, some public school, schools here in Milwaukee, some charter schools. And ultimately, just as you said, the education of the children is what's most important to the, to the folks in those buildings. And they don't really care about those differences between the systems uh, right. because, it, it, you know, by the end of the day, they're trying to do the best for the students that they have, regardless of where the students come from, regardless of the system that they have uh, in terms of whether it's a public school, charter school, whatever it may be. Right. I think, you know, one of the things that I find from interacting with the educators and the students at those schools is that division that we hear about, you know, the political divisions. Mm -hmm. You don't hear about that when you're in the schools. They don't think about it. They don't talk about it it's not really important to them because ultimately, you know, the students are looking to get the best education they can get. And the adults in the building, you know, the teachers and the other staff members of administrators, they're trying to do the best they can for those students. So I, I think a lot of the, the division is really kind of outside noise going to the school buildings. You don't really hear that stuff at all. There's, there's no conversation about those differences from, from my experience. Right. And, and from my experience, from us going and doing Q&A and uh, actually hearing the children, you know what I'm saying? It's the difference between having a conversation with a child and you actually hear that child. You know what I'm saying? It carries with you when you actually listen to the children and what they're going through and what their experience is are and them not knowing that 
certain issues are really issues, you know. So yeah. um, I, I think um, we can actually with this pandemic from where we are and in, in, on our journeys that we can reach out to the kids and the different organizations that actually work with these kids to see that that funding actually go to the children that need that funding to get the help that they need to be to be to progress and be around all kids. Mm. You know what I'm saying? And not just the kids that they go to school with. Right. You know, we, we live in a very kind of segregated community. Uh, but, you know, young people tend to, to not live in that same segregated space. You know, they have they have a lot of, you know, friends across different groups and, you know, friends across the city. So they, they tend to cross those barriers much more so than adults do. And one of the things I wanted to just kind of ask you about this morning uh, and some of the work that you've done, you know, not only talking with 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 families, but. Uh, talking with parents in particular, uh, you know, talking about kind of your experiences and some of the things that you've learned uh, about dealing with trauma and some of the tools that, that you found that have been effective for you and tools that you've heard about from other people that, you know, have had families impacted by the same, you know, types of things that, that your family has dealt with. You know, I, I think it's important that we be able to provide people with, with some of those ideas because there's a lot of people that are dealing with trauma right now, Maria, in our community, and they just don't have a clue where to start in right. terms of how to deal with it. And, you know, from your experience, what, what are some of the things that, that you kind of advise people to do to kind of get a start if they're dealing with trauma? Because obviously there's a lot of trauma that's coming about as a result of, of how the COVID-19 is, is playing out in our community with the loss of so many people. But then what's even more difficult, I think, for a lot of people now is not being able to be with your family members in right. their last days, not being yeah. able to grieve in the way that we're accustomed to by having you know a funeral where you can get together with the family and have a repast and you know all those things that are so normal. You know, so what what are some of the, the things that that you've kind of advised people uh, to to do to begin the process of healing? I I think when you're grieving from a loved one and there's tragedy. There's a lot of um, misunderstanding or there's uh, you don't know how to relate to somebody else that's grieving beside you because you're grieving two different ways. Um, when you lose a loved one in a tragedy, at that moment, at that time, during that process, you're only thinking of your own breathing process. Mm -hmm. um, I've learned, had to learn, uh, because of the victimization that Dontre was put in and I was put in for being his parent that your sons are victimized. They're his brothers. They're grieving too. 
So you have to get rid of the selfishness of your love for the individual and think about the living mm. and think about the nurturing they need, the empathy from you that they need. You have to think about their loss and how they're supposed to go forward, too. And you have to be concerned mm. about what that process is going to look like for them. Mm. Um, and it, it's not going to happen overnight. Um, I, I think for parents, we start off with my. My is the attachment uh, that you have with your child or your wife or your husband. This is mine. Mine is gone. Mm -hmm. Your mind was somebody else's brother, somebody else's son, somebody mm -hmm. else's cousin, somebody else's uncle. And you can't dismiss people. Why you're grieving. Mm -hmm. So you, we, we as people have to look at not just, dang, my, my day messed up, my, my life messed up. No, your family is going through a grieving process. And I've learned that being together, if, if there's nothing but sitting quiet while you're grieving, allowing somebody else to grieve, mm -hmm. and you be a comfort to them, or you just sit in that space and let them breathe and not judge them or have anything to say. They just want somebody there to know that they're hurting. They don't want your advice. They don't want your comments. Mm -hmm. They just need to know that if I'm feeling out of whack, man, I ain't getting ready to hang out with y'all. I'm getting ready to go watch a movie with mom. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? It may be beneficial word to me, and it may just be for his benefit or her benefit. Just to know that, hey, I can go here and she cares. And mm -hmm. she ain't said nothing the whole time I was sitting there. Mm -hmm. But I feel better knowing that I got that out. And I can move forward or I can do something else towards my progress of living without this individual. Because yeah. I know individual wanted the best for me in the list. Right. So it's kind of collective grieving where you're you're there for them, they're there for you. Yes. You know, you're providing them with what they need, they're providing you with what you need. You know, and, and as you said, you know, sometimes people just need your physical presence there. Right. And they don't, you know, they don't need you to give them advice because you nope. can't you can't get inside of somebody's head and figure out where they are in their grieving process. 
Right. But, you know, one of the things that I hear people say a lot, you know, uh, when, when, when things like this happen that I think is really something that people should avoid is saying, you know, I, I know exactly how you feel. And Come on now. You can't. <laughs> it's, it's not possible, right? Because oh I'm sure you, you heard people say that. I know exactly yes. what you're going through. I mean, hundreds and thousands and thousands of times. And I think that's why I really got to the point where I wasn't disrespectful, but I I literally would tell people, don't tell me before they say it. I'd be like, <clears throat> you know, I I know that you're concerned and you've been praying for me. Don't tell me you care. You know what I'm saying? Because at that point, I was starting to shut down with even communicating with people or putting myself in certain spaces because I didn't have a tolerance for it anymore because you don't know how I feel because this didn't happen to you. And even when me and the moms actually get together and we're talking, I can't tell Alicia Stingley I know how she feels because I didn't have a 17-year-old son held down, choked to death, in a hospital room with no brain activity for four or five days before they pronounced him dead. You know what I'm saying? I don't know how that feels. Right. But people have a tendency, I think that's the empathy part of them trying to attach themselves to end of to an individual that is hurting. Right. You know, I, I think a lot really of that, it. You know what I'm saying? A lot of it comes from people just making that assumption because they've seen, you know, that that's what happens in the movies. You know, that's how people, you know, that's yeah. how people help people get over stuff in the movies. But in the real world, it's different because everybody's experience is different and how everybody handles it is different. I mean, I, I, I've even noticed like within families, different people um, deal with, with these tragedies in completely different ways. Yes. And, you know, you have to let people be who they are in their grieving process. Let them grieve the way that they that they have to grieve, the way that they're comfortable grieving and not try to judge the way they're grieving versus the way you're grieving because everybody is their own individual. And, you know, when my brother passed earlier this year, you know, just dealing with that, uh, having my brother in my life for 54 years yeah. and, and losing him, uh, you know, to a heart attack. It was really, really tough for me. And still to this day, it's tough. But by the same token, I understand that my mother is grieving mm -hmm. in a completely different way than I am. I understand that my niece and her kids are grieving in a completely different way than I am. And I just try to, to just be there as kind of a support in anything that they need, just give them their space that they need mm -hmm. and just be there as, as, you know, not somebody to, to, to talk to them, but to listen, you know, if they need to talk, just, you know, be an ear for them. And I think that's an important thing that we can learn. It's just sometimes it's better to just shut up and just listen to people because that's what they want from you. They don't want you to talk to them. Right. And, and I think the fact that me and Nate and Damien wasn't venting 
we won't display anger. We were coming from a good place in our heart for our loved ones. Um, it didn't get, they couldn't sweep it away. You know what I'm saying? Because mm -hmm. we're coming from a true place on the inside that he ain't who you say he was. And no, you can't comfort me because you don't know what this is. And I don't want you to know what this is. And while I'm in this space, I need for Nate to be in control of this because I can't relate. Right. You know, a lot of times you have to remove yourself and what you're feeling to get the narrative correct, to get the answers that you need. And if you're, uh, I, I tell a lot of my moms, like right now, we had a conversation prior to taping, and if I didn't feel like I could do what I needed to do. We wouldn't be right here. But had this been during that time, I probably would have been like, you know, some yes, we need to. Uh, I need to step back for a minute, and I need to do take care of this or my feelings. But I think the journey and the recovery that I'm on has strengthened me to want to take a lot of hurt from loss and use it to help others. And I feel that's beneficiary to me and it's beneficiary to the help that's needed. Well, that, that's great. You know, uh, we're going to end with that. But, you know, as we continue to have these conversations, Maria, you know, I think there's a lot of, of things that you can kind of share from your lived experience that will be very helpful for people that listen to the podcast. And, you know, this, this has been great spending this, this half hour with you this morning. I uh, hope that you enjoy the rest of your day and, you know, looking forward to the next time. Uh, so, you know, be well, be safe. Say hi to the family for me. Yeah. Until uh, next time we get together, Maria. Right. And I give you my condolences. I know your father was sick. I hope he's doing well. And I hope everybody's staying safe. And truly, again, you are lifted in prayers with your bro brother, uh, the passing of your brothers and the work that you're actually doing in our community. You know, we love you, Rick. All right. Likewise, Maria. Take care until next time. All right. You as well. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.